This summer, we've been really looking at the series that we've just simply titled The Miraculous, um, which is really kind of a glance at the miracle moments that surround Jesus and followers of Jesus. And I kind of, over the past <clears throat> weeks, have given a big backstory about how I got there. We're going to kind of skip all that this morning and dive into another miracle moment that we see surrounding the life of a follower of Christ. And we're going to look at it in terms of the framework, not so much of the miracle itself, but the circumstances that surround it. Because what I find oftentimes in Scripture is that it's not so much the miracle that is really amazing. I mean, I believe God can do the miraculous, can do incredible things. But it's oftentimes the circumstances that surround it and that affect the follower of Christ that I find extraordinary. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at a guy by the name of Philip and the extraordinary circumstances that surround a really cool miracle moment in his life where he has to decide if he's going to say yes to what it means to truly follow Christ. So we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and flip there. Um, I'm going to kind of motor through some things pretty quick this morning because we also are celebrating communion together first of the month. We're excited about that. And, and so I'm, I'm going to go through some things kind of quickly this morning. But I want to give you some background of this chapter in Acts uh, chapter 8 because there's some really interesting things that are taking place in history. We've got to pay attention to them. We're going to be looking at an interaction with a guy by the name of Philip. Uh, this morning, and this is a really important history point in the in kind of the picture of the new church, and you've got to read scripture in its context. You've heard me kind of get on my soapbox before and say, look, you can't proof text scripture. Don't just pick verses you like and skip the ones you don't. You have to read scripture in its entirety, understand what is going on. So if you're going to read stories and, and things in, in the Bible, then read the context they're in because it actually adds incredible depth. And if we just look at the story of Philip that we're going to see today, we don't understand what's happening in history. We really miss a huge, huge kind of important part of the, the amazing encounter that takes place. But the church is actually, at this point in time, it is new and it is growing and it's kind of exploding. And there's, there's thousands of people that are kind of being added to these followers of Christ. And God is doing really cool things in Jerusalem. And the Jewish leaders can't stand it. In fact, they hate it because it's threatening their way of life. These Christians, they didn't go away when they crucified Jesus. They had really hoped that the Christians would just go away. But these followers of Christ were actually, they weren't. They were actually gaining momentum. And so it was really driving the leaders crazy and we see in Acts chapter 5 and 6 some things that are happening where the followers of Christ are gaining such momentum with the people that the Jewish leaders figure out are trying to figure out ways to kind of stop it. Well, in Acts chapter 6, there's an encounter with a guy by the name of Stephen, who kind of goes before the Jewish leading council, and, and he, he makes this great speech, and everybody kind of freaks out, and they decide they're going to kill him, right? And so they take him out, and they stone him, literally not just like hand-sized rocks. The way they stone people literally back in those days, when they would take you to the edge of town, they would push you off a cliff, because Jerusalem would be surrounded by these jagged cliffs, and they would like shove boulders down on top of you. And so they'd heave these stones on you, take you outside of town, this sort of kind of crazy display and that's what they did to Stephen they stoned Stephen to death and as he's dying he looks up and he says I see the son of man I see Jesus sitting at the right hand the people freak out and they you know leaders are killing him and they kind of get the crowd going and this whole thing goes on and there's this guy named Saul standing there right Saul who we learned about a few weeks ago literally later on becomes Paul well Saul is standing there giving his blessing as his up-and-coming leader, as they stone Stephen to death. Well, chapter 8 of the book of Acts says, on that very day, the very day that Stephen was killed and stoned to death, a great persecution broke out in all Jerusalem against the Christians. So this persecution breaks out, and the Christians are scattered. It says that Saul starts going door to door, arresting people in Jerusalem for being followers of Christ, and the people are scattered. They're scattered all over Judea and all over Samaria. 
Now, in those days, they would often, when you took over a land, you know, like you see this in the Old Testament, when you take over a land, you often scatter the people, right? It's, remember when the Jewish people were taken into exile uh, by the Babylonians or the Assyrians? Well, they were taken into exile because if you decentralize a group of people and you move them out away from each other, there's less chance of them rallying back together again. Well, that's what's happening with these Christians. I mean, they don't want them together. When they get together, they gain momentum, and so they took them and they scattered them all over the area. they just pick them up and they'd move them, or people would run. So this centralized group of thousands of Christians in Jerusalem is now scattered all over Judea and into Samaria, where Jewish people wouldn't even go, but they were scattered in all these areas. This morning, we're going to learn about a guy named Philip who finds himself in the middle of that scattered group of people in Samaria as a follower of Christ. Now, this is not the Philip that's a disciple of Jesus and was formerly a disciple of John the Baptist. This is actually a different Philip who's got two names or two titles in Scripture. One is Philip the deacon, because in, in the early part of Acts 6, the seven apostles appoint Stephen to be in charge of the distribution of food to the, food to the whole community. So he's got a, the role of a deacon, caretaker. And he also gets the title Philip the Evangelist because of what we're going to see today. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, with the Jewish people, or the Jewish Christians scattered all over Samaria and Judea, and Philip leading this little group of people in a small region in Samaria, and we're going to see what God does in the middle of Philip's life. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 8 for me. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to pray before we dive into it together. Let's take a moment. Lord, a lot of backstory to understand where we are, but that's how we, we read the depth of Scripture, is understanding what's going on in the lives of people. These are not isolated incidents. God, they're your complete and total move, your redemptive plan for humanity. And Lord, we are grateful that we get to step into your word this morning. Take a moment and just ask God to to teach you something new this morning about his character, about his nature. Just ask God to move in you. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. Uh, even if you don't know their name, even if you're here for the first time, just pray that God would move in the people around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Father, this is not an ordinary Sunday. It's every Sunday we gather together is an opportunity to meet with you in community. And so, Lord, we don't take that for granted. Lord, teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, that your word is true, it is alive, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts this morning. You would teach us. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 8. All right, we're going to start at verse 26. Jewish followers of Christ are scattered all over the area. I mean, 150 to 200 mile radius. These thousands of people, kind of three to four to five to six thousand of people have been spread all around. And we find this Philip, this guy that had been appointed by the apostles, an important guy to take care of the daily distribution of food to the community. So those that had needs, uh, those that needed food, Philip's job was to make sure that the followers of Christ fed were fed. Because remember in Acts 1, they shared everything. They shared their lives. They shared food. They, they got together and they broke bread. Well, Philip's job was making sure that people had what they needed because the community lived together. So Philip is scattered in this sort of great persecution and he's sent to Samaria. And what we know about Philip's ministry in Samaria is this. It was going really well. First part of chapter 8 says that Philip was doing all kinds of miracles. He was preaching the gospel. People were meeting Christ. And the phrase is this, and there was great joy in the city. So in a time of, of 
kind of persecution and scattering when things should be really tough. God has given Philip favor, and he is working in Samaria, and people that didn't know Jesus are meeting Jesus, and people are being healed, and miracles are happening, and the city is rejoicing, and you can almost use the word revival. I mean, things are happening. So that's what's going on in the life of Philip when we pick up in in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way home, sitting in the chariot reading from the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water, why shouldn't I be baptized? And then he gave the orders to stop the chariot, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but we went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So, somewhat of a familiar story. I, mean, I think we've even explored it. We explored it a couple years ago from a different angle. But it's a story that a lot of us may be familiar with. I mean, there's a miracle moment there at the end when it's sort of in a Holy Spirit disappearing act after Philip kind of baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. He's taken away, like just vanished. And he appears again, he starts preaching the, the gospel as he moves his way back up uh, to Caesarea in the area of, of Philippi. And we get that singular, amazing miracle, right? I mean, just this whirlwind of God's kind of uh, mystery and power. But really the circumstances that surround that are fascinating to me. Because here's this guy, Philip, who is really just an ordinary guy. The apostles appointed him because he was trustworthy and he was loyal and God's favor seemed to be on him. And they said, we're giving you an important job. And he did his job well. And then persecution breaks out and Stephen's killed. And they've got to run or they're scattered. And Philip finds himself where no Jewish person really wanted to go, finds himself in the middle of Samaria. And so he starts preaching the gospel. He does the only thing that he knows, just telling people about Jesus, and God grants him favor. He begins to heal the sick, and people become to know Christ, and ministry explodes, and there is great joy in the whole area. Well, in the middle of that, an angel Lord shows up and says, listen, I want you to go. I want you to go down from the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, the desert road was called the desert road for a reason. It literally led from Jerusalem all the way down to Gaza, which was kind of south, and then all the way down into Africa, all right? It was right through the middle of the desert. It was hot, and it was long, and it was a very dangerous, very difficult, but very well-traveled road. It was the path up from Africa towards Jerusalem, and the road that uh, Philip would be traveling was about 50 miles long, and he would be heading all the way down there from Gaza, uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. So God says to the angel of the Lord, I want you to go south, right, to the road that leads to Gaza. Just leave Samaria, which is way up north, go back down to Jerusalem, and then take that road south all the way. Basically, leave the ministry you're involved in, all the things that are happening there, pack your stuff, and just leave. 
So Philip does just that. It says that he sets out and he's walking down this road. He gets down there and he sees a chariot. And, and in that chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch, for those of you that may not be familiar with the, the word, is a, a castrated man. Now, the biblical term for castration is castration. So, you know, he kind of had his stuff taken care of. All right? So if you're young and you're with us, ask your mom when you get home. Your dad probably won't want to explain it. So... You've got this Ethiopian eunuch who had been castrated because he worked with the queen of Ethiopia. Candace was not her name, by the way. It was actually a title. kind of means mother in charge of all. So he's working with the queen of Ethiopia. Now, oftentimes in those days, the people that worked closest to the queen, the males that worked closest to the queen, were castrated to make sure all their doings were on the up and up. Right? So they took care of that so that there wouldn't be any accidents right? because the bloodline was really important. And so we don't want anything happening that shouldn't be happening. And so if you're going to work in close proximity to the queen, then we're going to make sure that everything's you know, kind of on the, uh, the up and up. And so this person in this chariot was a eunuch that was in charge of all the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia is not the country that you're thinking about today. You know, we think about poverty-stricken Africa, where, you know, you've seen the pictures on TV where kids are starving. That state, or that country, Ethiopia, was actually a much bigger region at the time, and it was incredibly wealthy. So this guy kind of was a big deal. He was in charge of all the money of the queen. Right, so he's, he's a big deal. And he's going down in this chariot. He was leaving Jerusalem where he came to worship, which means he was somewhat interested at very least about Jewish culture, right? And uh, maybe he was a convert, who knows? But we know he's leaving Jerusalem, headed back down towards Africa. When an angel of the Lord again appeared to Philip and said, I want you to go stand near that chariot. So Philip runs himself over and he's walking next to the chariot as it heads down this road. And he can hear that eunuch inside reading out loud from the book of Isaiah the prophet. And he's reading a certain text about, you know, before the, uh, the shear, the lamb was silent. You know, it's a, it's a very prophetic text about uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Philip, hearing this, because he's listening, sticks his head kind of around the corner of his chariot and says, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch looks at him and he says, how could I, right? How could I unless someone explains it to me? And this is confusing stuff because the eunuch did not know about Jesus, right? So is he talking about him or somebody else? I don't get it. How can somebody just explain it to me? So Philip's kind of comment is, well, well, do you mind? He's like, no, come on. And so he hops in the chariot and he sits there. From that passage, he explains the good news about Jesus. Well, this eunuch is so moved by that explanation that they come to some water and he says, look, I should be baptized, which means that Philip had got all the way through baptism and all these things. He says, I want to be baptized. They stop the chariot. They both get out. Philip baptizes this eunuch in the water right there on the side of the road. And then in a crazy kind of miracle, Holy Spirit disappearing act, Philip goes away, boom. And the eunuch doesn't even care, rejoicing on his way. And then Philip appears and preaches the gospel on the road some more and then goes to a whole new town, Caesarea. Now, I find this story amazing because, I mean, of course, that, that miracle moment is really cool, um, but really the circumstances that surround it in the life of Philip, I find to be really deep because Scripture for me, a lot of times when I read it, I always ask myself, how would I respond? How would my life, what would I, how do I put myself in here? How would I respond to these same call, the same voice of the Lord? And I find some really things interesting about the circumstance. And the first thing would be, when we look at the call of God as a whole, right? So here you have Philip doing ministry in Samaria, and things are going really, really well. I mean, by all church standards, life is great. People are coming to know Christ. The church is growing. People are probably giving, 
right? I mean, things are happening. You are using the words revival. There's great joy in the city. By our Western standards, I mean, our Western standards of church, I mean, that's when you pay the pastor, you give him a raise, maybe you hire somebody else, you know, you decide that you're going to do a building campaign for like a $2.3 million family life center. You put in some roots, you do coffee shop and a bookstore and a winery or a brewery or whatever, you know, and I want to go to that church, you know, and so you build this thing, right? Because blessing is happening and we're going to put our roots down and you just think, man, this is the time to sink our teeth into Samaria where the gospel is not, right? But God's call is really inconvenient at best, if not borderline ridiculous. I mean, in the middle of this amazing kind of ministry moment, God shows up to Philip, the leader, the guy that has been kind of given the blessing who's in charge and he says, I want you to leave. And I want you to just go where I'm going to tell you to go. I mean, it's a really inconvenient call. I mean, maybe Philip was finally seeing some blessing and he was preaching and God says, go. So he goes. But the call that God also gives Philip is very vague. It's not like it's filled with details. In fact, all it says is go south to the desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is it. There is no other instruction. There is not, I'll give you more when you get there. You're going to meet this guy along the way. Bring your family. You know, you're going to get paid. I mean, there's nothing. It is leave the blessing where you are, right? Leave all those things that are going well and that seem to be going well and follow me. God's call is vague in the life of Philip. It's just go. Go south to the desert road. That's it. So God's call is inconvenient at best, God's call is vague, and also God's call is really difficult. I mean, this is not an easy journey. You're traveling by foot, you're walking 50 miles in the desert, you don't know what you're looking for, you don't have an armed guard with you, robbery was very real, right? There were all kinds of bandits and things on those roads are waiting for people to go by so they could beat them up and rob them, we see that in scripture happening. God's call was difficult. It wasn't one of exchanging, hey, you're doing great, things are going, I'm going to actually move you up to a bigger area of ministry. He just says, go south, and the call was really hard. I mean, I can almost imagine Philip walking through this desert road, and it is hot. And you think it's hot here. I mean, try going to the Middle East in the middle of the summer in the desert. I mean, it is hot, and he's walking in the desert. There's no anything around. I mean, these aren't towns that are just sort of, you know, gas station here, gas station there. I mean, he's just walking. And he's walking on this road, and he's going, well, God said to go, and I can almost hear him going, man, I really left Samaria, and what was happening for this? And what, God, what are you doing here? I got a bag of clothes, and I'm just waiting. I mean, God's call is really unique there. I mean, it is, it's inconsistent, and it's vague, and it's, you know, it, it's inconvenient, it's vague, and it's difficult. So how does Philip respond in the middle of all that? Is, it's really amazing kind of the way that he thinks about it, because all we see in Scripture is God say, Go south to the desert road that leads to Gaza. And the verse after that says, so he went. So God speaks, and Philip goes, right? Philip also listens. He, number one, he heard the voice of the Lord the first time, but then he heard the voice of the Lord the second time. Angel Lord appears to Philip and says, go next to the chariot. And he walks up to that chariot, and he listens, and he hears that eunuch reading. So Philip, he's going, he's listening, Right? For those moments. And then finally he, he speaks into the life. I mean he's waiting there. Listening to this guy. We don't see God prompt him. Say now go talk to the, the Ethiopian. He just is listening. And then he uses that moment. That he hears this guy. Talking about scripture. To introduce him to Christ. 
Now, the response is amazing to me for a couple of reasons. Because, and this is what I really want to want you to hear today. Um, it's amazing to me for a couple of reasons. Because when I think about God's call in my own life, and I think about God's call for us as followers of Christ, oftentimes God's call in our life and God's timing in our life is very inconvenient. Right? It's not the way that we planned our life out. Right? I've got these things set, and God, you're welcome to do something as long as I finish this. Or I do this, or I save this much, or I hit these markers, or I do whatever. But oftentimes God shows up in the middle of all that in a very inconvenient way and calls us to something else. And I'm not talking about leaving your whole life and moving to Africa, right? Maybe, but maybe it's something much smaller than that. But God's call often shows up when we least expect it and sometimes even don't want it. God doesn't wait for us to organize our lives and say, okay, you got it all together? Great, I was really hoping that was going to work out because I've got something great for you. God shows up in the middle of us kind of directing our own paths and in a very inconvenient way says, I've actually got something else. I recognize what you built for yourself, which is lovely, but we're going to be doing something different. God's call oftentimes is not what we want to hear. It's, it's inconvenient, right? And sometimes God's call is really vague. Sometimes God's call doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes there's not a lot of clear direction. Sometimes when God calls us to leave a career, he doesn't already have another one telling us it's lined up. So he's going, okay, look, I'm going to tell you to walk away from your job as, as whatever because I've got something else. Just trust me. Here it is. It's right here. And here's the, you know, we don't always have those handoffs because God withholds information from you so that you will seek him more intently. Here's the major conflict. You want answers and God wants you to know him. God doesn't care about you knowing the outcome. God wants you to meet him in the middle of it. See, your desire and God's desire, my desire and God's desire are very different. When God calls me, I want to know the result before I let go of what I'm hanging on to. And God's whole goal for my life is that I would know him. Not that I would know how it ends. So God's call in our life is oftentimes vague. And you're not reading scripture very well if you read scripture and think that God gives you the end result before you actually set out on this journey. Almost, in Scripture, ex- almost exclusively, we never see that happen. Abraham, you start naming him, God always says go, he never tells him where they're going. Why? Because God is so much more interested in people knowing him than he is in people knowing the outcome. But you and I, we want to know the outcome. We want to know the end result. And so we hang on for dear life until we can try and pull both of these things close enough together where I can make a little half-hearted leap and say, "Woo!" But God says, listen, go south to the desert. That's it. And I've looked at my own life and thinking about God's call on it, and God's call is often really vague. God's call can also be really difficult. I think one of the misunderstandings for a lot of Christians is that when God calls us to something, it's going to be, he's going to clear a path, kind of knock down all the trees, we're going to see it, we're going to walk on it, we're going to have a peace, and it's going to be okay. The reality is, is that sometimes God's call is really, really hard. Sometimes God's call leads us into the desert, leads us into difficult roads that are difficultly traveled. Sometimes God's call means letting go and leaving places like Samaria where life is really good and things are going really well and stepping into a completely different way of life. But oftentimes we run from that under the disguise of saying, God, I don't have a lack of, pe- I have a lack of peace. I know you're calling me to do this thing over here, but I, I don't feel good about it. Really all you're saying is that, God, I don't really like it because it's harder than where I am now. We always want 
God to lead us down a path that is one step better or bigger than where we are. It happens with pastors all the time. I've got a bunch of friends. We always laugh because all of our friends always get called, but they never get called to smaller, less paying churches, right? They're always called to bigger, better paying churches, you know? And, and we just laugh about it because we're like, this God only moves one way, right? But the reality is that oftentimes we don't want to hear the other direction sometimes. We don't want to hear that it's going to be a difficult call. It's going to be hard, but God is doing something. And it happens in all of our lives. We always want the move up, right? Because it makes things easy. But God's call is oftentimes difficult. And sometimes God's call is to walk away from it all without knowing where it ends. So the question for us in the middle of these sort of sometimes inconvenient, sometimes vague, sometimes difficult calls is really how do we respond? How do you respond? I mean, are you really willing to go? I mean, we call ourselves followers of Christ. I mean, that's, we, we use those titles. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. But am I really willing to go? I mean, if the Holy Spirit were to speak into my life, and maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking into your life, and he's saying, listen, I want you to do this. And I, again, I'm not just talking about packing up your possessions and moving somewhere, but maybe it's something in your life. And the Holy Spirit calls, are you really willing to let go of the life you've created for yourself and say, God, I'll follow you? Are you really willing to follow the Lord? Not just when it's convenient, not just when it's not hard, and not just when it's crystal clear. But are you willing to go at any moment in time? Is that something that you've prepared your heart for as a follower of Christ? Because if not, your life will be in constant tension. God calling you to give it up, you holding on to it with everything you have, and you will live in a lack of peace. So are you willing to go, to respond, to say yes? Philip, so he went. Are you willing to listen? See, I think a lot of times we don't, hear the call of God because we're not listening. Our time in the, with, in the word, our prayer life, the things that build our relationship with Christ are not priorities for us. Instead, work and things and stuff are. And if we get around to the Bible once this week, that's been a pretty good week, if that. I believe that Philip's life was so in touch with the Holy Spirit, he was so committed to following Christ that he could hear the voice of the Lord, that when an angel of the Lord showed up, he knew clearly it was God's call. I don't think we listen very well to the Lord. We sure shout things out, God, do this for me. I need this. Prepare me for this. Protect me from this. Give me this. Give me this. Give me this. Give me this. But very seldom we listen and say, God, where do you want me? How do I follow you better? Show me who you are. And God withholds things so that we'll seek him. Not so that we'll find them out, but so that we'll seek him more intently. God's goal for your life is that you would know him. Are you listening to the voice of God? And, and also, like Philip, are you listening to the people around you? I mean, Philip was called to go up to this chariot and walk alongside it. And what did he do? He heard the Ethiopian reading scripture. God didn't then tell him what to do. At that moment in time, Philip knew exactly what to do, which is, I'm going to talk about Jesus. And he sticks his head in that chariot and says, you know what you're talking about? He says, no, how could I? He says, let me tell you. And he shares Jesus from that exact point. He stopped and he's baptized. And then Philip's gone. And I find this really fascinating for my own life because I don't do that great a job of listening to the needs of other people all that well. But I think that's what God really desires for us, is that we would listen well to the people around us and find moments to talk about Jesus in the middle of their lives. See, Philip saw the question and the reading of that Ethiopian eunuch as an entry point to talk about Jesus. He was geared that way. His whole life was about, I want you to know the God that has rescued me and redeemed me. And most of us, we don't think that way, right? It takes us two years of a relationship with someone to even invite them to church. 
much less want to speak about Christ in their lives. But really, Philip got the title evangelist because he was a follower of Christ. We are all evangelists. We're called to talk about Jesus. As I think about this, I really think about my own life going, man, am I really willing, Lord, in the middle of your sort of inconvenient, vague, sometimes difficult calls to say, yes, I'll go. Whatever it is, I'm in. Because I want to know you. Right? I want to listen to your voice. I want to listen to people around me. I want to talk about Jesus to people. I want you to use me. I'll wrap it all up by telling you this story. I, I told the story before, but it's, it's such a powerful story for me um, that I'm going to share it again because I think that it's, it's just worth retelling. But when I was in seminary out in California, I was studying one afternoon at this uh, little restaurant by the school, and this waitress came over, and I was reading some giant history of theology book, um, bored out of my skull, and, and she asks what I was doing, and I, I was reading, and I said, well, I'm reading, and she says, well, your book looks kind of boring, and I said, it is kind of boring, and uh, she says, well, what are you studying? I said, well, I'm actually seminary, I'm studying, I guess I'm going to be a pastor, I, I don't really know, you know, I had no clue, I still don't have much of a clue, I was like, I don't know, um, and I said, well, have, have you uh, ever been to church? And she said, no. No, she almost laughed. She was like, no, no, no. And I said, well, why not? She was, well, church, <laughs> I know that church, they don't want people like me. And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, listen, I, you know, I don't know you from anything, but I've not lived a very good life. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've got all kinds of issues. I'm a single mom, got a couple of kids, and, you know, and she kind of went through this whole explanation of how her life had been marred with some really bad choices, some pretty deep sin, and some other things. And I said, well, how do you know that the church doesn't want you? I mean, that, does, that doesn't make any sense. Just because you've had some bad things, how do you know that? She said, well, I've lived in the same house for the past about 12-ish years. And the guy that lives next to me is the pastor of this church. And she mentioned the name of this church in, in the city. It's a really big church, great church. And it, was, it, was a, it actually was a great church. I used to go there when I was in town. He says, it's a pastor of this church. And I said, Okay, and she said, and, and he, he does amazing things for me. He mows my yard almost on a weekly basis. His wife's always bringing us food. Um, and they just, they just, they're really great to us. They love us. And I said, well, that sounds awesome. I mean, why would you not think they wanted you to church? He said, well, in the 12 years that we've lived there, he, he's never, or they've never invited me to church. And so I always just figured that it was because while they liked me, they didn't really want me to come or want me around church people or church people didn't want me and so I just never gone so we talked for a little while longer and I thought about that so much over the past years and I even reflected on it now going here's this guy this pastor who loves Jesus I mean it's a great church he loves Jesus and he loved Jesus enough to serve this woman like crazy mow her yard his wife was making him dinner they took care of her but he never took a moment to tell her about Jesus he just loved her which is fine but at some point in time, we've got to talk about Christ. At some point in time, we have to move beyond that comfort of just saying, I'm going to do nice things for you, and I'm not going to cuss at you, and I'm going to treat you with respect, because I want to tell you about the God that has changed my life. And for 12 years, he never took a moment just to say, listen, I want to tell you about Jesus, and I want you to come to church with me. Now, I'm not faulting him for that, because, I mean, you know, but what it did was challenge me into this. How often do I tell people about Jesus? How often do I share my faith with them? How often do I look at them and say, 
I want you to know about the God that has changed my life. Those of you that have traveled us to other countries, we've done this like crazy. We've gone hut to hut in Africa and college student to college student in China, and we've shared the gospel over and over and over again. But how many times have you done it in your own life here? How many times have we looked at that coworker and said, you know what, I've sat next to you for six and a half months, we share a cubicle, and I've never taken a moment just to invite you to come to church with me. You may not want to, but I want you to come. You know, or you hear someone at work talking about their failing marriage, and take a moment to speak into their life and talk about how God can redeem and restore. We are called to talk about Christ. Because Christ is the ultimate picture of God's love for us. And if we're truly going to be followers of Christ, we are an expression of that extravagant love. Sometimes God's call is inconvenient. Sometimes it's vague. Sometimes it's difficult. But our response is say, yes, Lord, I'll go. I will go. I will listen. And I will talk about Jesus because of what you've done for me. And this table is really the perfect picture of what God has done for us. It's the reason that we're called to express and tell people about Jesus. Because this table was the promise of Christ's extravagant love laid out in us. And each month we celebrate communion together as a way of remembering God's extravagant love. The love that he poured out through us through Jesus Christ. Where God says, I love you so much that I give the life of my son so that you may know me. And know me to the full. This table is not a denominational table. I really don't care what background you're from. But what it is is the table for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ to gather together and proclaim and remember the extravagant sacrifice that God made for us through his son, Jesus. As Jesus gathered his disciples, the night, the night that he was betrayed and handed over, the night that everyone would abandon him and desert him and that he would be denied by one of his closest friends, he sat with his disciples and he looked at them and he, he took bread and after giving thanks, he looked at them and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for you. It's the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. That when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This morning, as we take communion together, we do it by means of intinction, which is a fancy word for saying, just take a piece of bread as you come through, dip it in the cup. We'll have two stations. Feel free when you need or when you're ready to come down. There's no fancy order or special way of doing it. But as Don and the band lead us in worship and you feel ready to come participate in this meal together to celebrate what God has done for us, what that picture of love looks like that we're called to tell the world about, you can come participate in that. We'll have a station down there and a station over here. But before we do that, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Ask God to move in us and remind us of the sacrifice that was made because we don't take this meal lightly.